every time that I prepare for a lesson, I find something that I didn't know about a lesson that we already did. <laughs> so I have a couple of tidbits for you related to stuff that we covered before. One thing was, when, remember when we did the handout on the number seven? And we kind of went through and we just looked at all the scriptures and we decided based on looking at those scriptures that when seven was used symbolically in the scripture, it had a connotation of two connotations. One was usually holiness was somehow associated with it. And the other thing was it was like some a feeling of completeness, right? You know, it was like the whole, whatever it was talking about was a whole. I ran across this week in a book that I should have looked up the definition of the Hebrew word for seven. The definition for the word for seven, the the word is Shiba, Shiba, in Strong's Hebrew Dictionary, which is the authoritative source. Seven is defined as the sacred full one. Per Strong's, it comes from the root word Shaba, which means be complete. Isn't that amazing? That is just awesome. And the other thing that I wanted to tell you is I mentioned, I think, back in uh, lesson one, that there was a good possibility that Daniel had been uh, castrated when he was taken to Babylon. I did not give you a source for that statement, but um, it comes from the Hebrew word that is used in verse seven of Daniel one for where it says officials. That word officials can also be translated eunuch. It is equally correct to translate the word either way. And so authorities don't really know which way it was meant. And that was that same word was used in a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 39 verses 5 through 7, where Isaiah was speaking to one of the latter kings of Judah, you know, a a few kings before they got deported. (laughs) Okay, and Isaiah prophesied to him. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord, and of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away. They're going to take away the sons. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. It's that same, it's that same word, you know, it could be, they could be officials, you know, but, but it prophets, that was Isaiah 39, 5 through 7. Seven uh, is S-H-E-B-A, coming from a word that's S-H-A-B-A. Okay. So anyway, I thought y'all would find that interesting. 39, 5 through 7. All right, so just to pick up where we left off, in cha- we're in the chap- middle of chapter 2. Daniel has been given, uh, shown in a vision what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was of the statue that had the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of an, a mixture of iron and clay. And he's now giving that interpretation to the king. We've gotten to chapter 2, verse 39. We, we already went through what the head was. And the interpretation of the head of gold was right there. In, you know, Daniel just said right out, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So now we're to the next part. Verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. 
So in this lesson, you definitely need your uh, timeline. Let's take a look at it if you have it handy. Excellent. Okay, so look on your timeline and find Nebuchadnezzar. He's the gold star with the N in the middle. Okay. And um, for those of you who weren't here at the lesson where we did this, we had this humongous, big time chart of all the, you know, history of the world and all the civilizations. And we had gone through together and had looked to see what the major civilizations were, the major world powers from the beginning of the world to now. And this chart is a synopsis of what we saw. So what... Kingdom, what world kingdom arose after Nebuchadnezzar? The Persian. Medo-Persian. Okay. Medo meaning uh, Medea. So you see how it kind of grew out of Medea and uh, out of the Persians. There was a power struggle between the Medes and the Persians during this time. And the major king associated with this period is Cyrus. And he was a Persian. If you look at the statue, what part of the statue represented this kingdom? The second one. The second one and tell, describe for me what it, what it was. Silver. Silver. The arms. The arms. Breast, and arms. Breast and arms. So how would that fit, this Persian Empire? Does that fit in any way? Yes. Uh-huh. So, for example, there's a couple of things you can think about. For one thing, what might be the significance of the arms? It's below the head. It's after the head. Yes. It, it, the arms could be. It's less valuable than gold. It's less valuable. It's less than in some way. Exactly. Exactly. And one way that it could be less than has to do with a couple of things. Number one, you've got the unity of the kingdom. You know, the arms here could be the Medes and the Persians, right? It's no longer a unified head. Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of his empire. There was nobody else, and he was above the law. He could make laws. He could break laws. He could make laws for other people and do whatever he wanted. <laughs> you know? he, was, he was the ruler. Now, in the Persian Empire, that was not the case. The king was no longer above the law. And you actually can see that. In Daniel, it's in a later chapter, um, in chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. This, uh, this is in Daniel. and we'll, This is during the time of Daniel's life when he was getting, getting thrown into the lion's den. Okay, this is the chapter. Chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. And this occurred later in Daniel's life. He was an old man by this time. And... He lived into this Persian kingdom. So he is under the, the Persians now. Look what it says. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document. That is the injunction. So at this point, although the king is king, he can make a law by signing it into law, but he can no longer revoke it. Okay? He can't revoke it. So he has diminished power compared to what Nebuchadnezzar would have had. All right? Okay. One of the things that we had looked at last week about Nebuchadnezzar, we had looked at um, Habakkuk quite a bit. 
because Habakkuk had shown us the dialogue between God's prophet and God about why was Nebuchadnezzar being allowed to do what he was doing to Israel. Then what we saw in that passage was that Nebuchadnezzar was being used as God's tool. Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilling God's purpose. He was God's tool. And then at the end of his basically usefulness, his kingdom was going to be terminated and replaced by another kingdom. That's what this whole prophecy is about. Okay? And the kingdom that we see coming along is the Persians and the Medes. So Cyrus the Great. So the next question that should pop to our mind is, what, what are they being used for? Okay, why... Why Cyrus the Gate? Why were they a world power? So look at Isaiah 44. I, I know you won't be surprised to find out that this was all prophesied, right? <laughs> 44. Isaiah 44. We're going to start in verse 21 and we're going to kind of skip through to verse 28. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. It is I who says of Jerusalem. I'm down in verse 26 now. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. Verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. Number one, when Daniel is carried off into captivity, is Jerusalem is sacked. It's ruined. Okay? That's, there's a series of three or four deportations, Daniel being in the first one. And during that period of time, they basically carry off all the treasures of Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's no longer a sovereign city. But this, and that was all prophesied. We read the prophecies last week. But this is saying, I'm through punishing you. Okay? I'm through punishing you, Jerusalem. I'm going to have you be rebuilt. And then it names Cyrus. Isaiah lived 150 years before Cyrus. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> you know, I told you at the beginning of the lessons that when you go to seminary, a lot of people who go to seminary end up losing their faith yes. because there are teachers out there that will look at something like this and say, well, that had to have been written 150 years yeah. later. Yeah. Right. You know, and personally, I don't believe that. OK, but. In the end, it doesn't matter. Okay? In the end, what matters is that God is giving us a message. All right? And we're here to understand His sovereignty and to understand what His message is for us today. Okay? I personally believe God is perfectly capable of naming a future king in a, in a prophecy. All right? And that's how I will teach it because that's what I believe. But anyway, during the reign of Cyrus, if you look on your timeline, one of the things we looked at was shortly after his reign began, his reign began like in, you know, somewhere around 539 B.C. It depends on what date you actually pick. Three years later, he allowed a remnant to return to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. 
Three years later. Mm -hmm. So God has already established 150 years before it even happened why he's raising Cyrus. He says, I said Jerusalem will be inhabited and it will be, and I will raise up her ruins again. The next part is uh, a third kingdom. We're in verse 39 of Daniel chapter 2. What's the third world power? Greece, right, right, and and if and they're visually on the timeline here. Pass the timeline down so everybody's got one. Visually on the timeline, you can and we saw when we looked at the at the big time chart history of the world, we saw that these were bigger and bigger empires, right? They cover more and more land. If you look at historical maps of where they ruled. Nebuchadnezzar started out with Babylonia, which was pretty big. But as we go through these ensuing kingdoms, they're bigger and bigger and bigger and taking up more room. So the third kingdom was the Greek Empire. Now, this kingdom specifically in verse 39 is talked about as being inferior, right? Well, it's inferior. It's inferior in value. The metal of bronze is inferior to silver. But the, and we're interpreting that as inferior ruling power. So Nebuchadnezzar was the king. Cyrus uh, had an empire, but he was now no longer exempt from the law, could not revoke laws. When you get to the Greek empire, Alexander the Great was the guy who set up the Greek empire. He was the, he was the conqueror. Rulers were no longer even called kings. And they could not pass their power to their sons as a king would it wasn't a dynasty it was taken by force at this point okay so and in fact when alexander died at the age of 33 and when he died the kingdom was split up amongst his four generals right and it, there was a period of shuffling around but ultimately it ended up among his four generals so you can see the degradation of the kingly power as you move further and further from Nebuchadnezzar. The Greek empire, how is it described in the statue? It's bronze, but what part of the body is it? The belly and the thighs. Okay, look at your Greek empire. How, could, how would that fit? Does the Greek empire fit this prophecy? Well, we started, we started out with Alexander the Great. He might be the belly, right? Right. Because he's kind of single, unified. But then we split into those four generals. Okay? The, the generals split up the world. And this is the first time the world is split like this. They begin to split the world up amongst them. And you begin to see for the very first time a distinction between east and west. And, and it's our concept of East and West that we still have today. And it continues today. Okay. So I believe that's what those two thighs represent is the beginning of the break of the world between the East and West that continues today. Oh, what a great thought. That's absolutely right. And what? Speak up and say that again. Well, I don't want it to be on tape. <laughs> you know what? It's going to be on tape anyway. So. <laughs> It just occurred to me that, that from that leg and thigh area comes the fruit of your loins. Mm -hmm. And that the Greek Empire gave birth to that awesome Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And to our modern civilizations. I mean, when you think about what was God's purpose in bringing the Greek Empire? 
to power after the Persians. And that's not as clear in prophecy, but when you think about it, they gave that whole area of the world a common language. And that common language allowed us to have the scriptures that we have today that helped spread the good news throughout all the world. Mm-hmm. So then we get back to um, Daniel 2, chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And he's talking about all those kingdoms. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed into the common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of man, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So what's, you can look at your timeline. What's that fourth kingdom? Rome. Clearly one we recognize, right? And it, I sh- it's shown on here kind of with that little triangle because it, it, it kind of grew up gradually. It wasn't like Alexander the Great, boom, conquered the whole world. All right. It, it conquered, it nibbled pieces as it grew. And it started out as a republic. And as it grew and became a world power, it ultimately became an empire. There was an emperor rather than being ruled by you know, a triumvirate. Jesus was born during the reign of the first emperor of Rome. The very first one. So you can see what turmoil, political turmoil, the Christian faith began in. And why the Romans were so threatened by the Jews calling Jesus a king. Okay? This, they, they weren't overreacting. <laughs> okay? This was a real threat, even though it seems like it to us today. It was a very real threat to them. When we, go to, when we get to Rome, we continue to have an even more pronounced east-west division. Okay? Iron, I think we would all probably agree, is a very apt metal to describe the Roman Empire. It absolutely crushed everything in its path. What about the toes? We've got ten toes, and we saw at the end of the Roman Empire that it disintegrated into various kingdoms or countries, you know, nations that we recognize today. At the end of your timeline, you see Britain, Scandinavia, France, Germany, Italy, Greece, you know, and there was tons of them, but those are the biggies. And we never again saw a single big world empire after that. We've just seen all this plethora of, of, of various different kingdoms. You know, the, the question comes up, is somehow that a con- or some combination of those, ten, the ten kingdoms that those toes represent, you know? And pick, scholars have gone back and, you know, every book you read picks a different ten. Okay, 
That gives you a hint. That should give you a hint if you're studying, but they don't know for sure. Okay. How clear is it from this who those first four kingdoms are? Very, very clear. Okay. You can look at world history and see with it beyond a shadow of doubt what those first four kingdoms are. It becomes far less clear what the ten are. Now, there's a couple of things that could be the reason. One could be that we're misinterpreting the ten toes, okay, and, and looking for ten kingdoms when it's not ten kingdoms. Or it could be that it hasn't happened yet, right? Just because we're living doesn't mean all the prophecies have been fulfilled in our day, right? So it could be that ten kingdoms are to come. And you do see a number of scholars who teach that you should be watching for the resurrection of the Roman Empire in ten kingdoms. With an east five toes and a west five toes kind of thing. Okay? I want you, remember what we said when we started out with our rules of interpretation. When we're dealing with symbols in Scripture, and clearly this statue is a symbol, right? The whole thing is a symbol, okay? When we're dealing with, with symbols in Scripture, we are not going to guess at the interpretation. We're going to look at other Scripture and determine whether that will illumine how this symbol is meant, okay? And if the meaning is not clear, we're going to leave it alone. We're not going to guess. We'll just leave it and wait for the Lord to reveal it because the Lord, some prophecies in Scripture aren't, aren't ready to be revealed yet. They're not ready for us to know. It's not our time. And we'll see that even more in some parts of Revelation that we'll, we'll see Scriptures that are now clear to us like this. For example, somebody living back here in the Greek Empire would not have understood what that iron one was going to be, okay, short of a revelation from God. That's what I'm talking about. All right, so we're gonna, what we're going to look at here is the meaning of the number 10 in Scripture. All right, because I want to look at these 10 toes. I don't understand the 10 toes. I want to look at the 10 toes a little bit. Okay? What, we've done, what I did was I researched in a, in a number of books what they thought, what they said, what these authorities said 10 meant. And I've given you the footnotes, but 10 in one of them said 10 in Scripture had a connotation of testimony. Okay? Meaning testimony. Another one said 10 has a connotation of testing and trial. I don't think we should take anybody's connotation at face value. I think we should look for ourselves. So here you have all of the scriptures, with the exception of Daniel and Revelation, which we're studying, that mention the word 10, where it's not pretty obviously literal. You know, like somebody lived 110 years. Okay? Now, I have for you, and we'll be out on the website, all of the literal verses, okay, where I, because I'm human, and I may have called some out that you would disagree with, but they'll be out there for you to look at, okay, if, if you want. But it was voluminous, and I didn't think anybody wanted 30 pages, so, so <laughs> and we're not going to read all these. What I did was I did go through it, and you know what, I think it means enough or plenty or lots. It kind of means plethora. Okay? And so let's look at the ones. You can read these at your leisure, but let's look at the ones I boxed because they were, you know, kind of examples of why I think this. Page 2. Genesis 31, verse 6 and 7. Um, you know that I have served your father with all my strength. He's talking to his wife. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. 
And this, well, this is, he was such a human character in the Bible. You know, if I come up to you and they say, you know, they changed their minds a million times. Well, did I mean they changed their minds a million times? No. I mean, they changed their minds a whole lot of times. Okay. And that's, that's the sense that I'm getting here. And there's a, and you can see another example um, on the bottom of page three and top of page four. 1 Samuel 29, this, this verse uh, appears in a number of places. But is this not David? They're talking about King David, of whom they sing in the dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Clearly, they're not talking a literal number. They're, it, they're doing a comparison, a greater than. They mean, you know, Saul has slain lots, but David has slain a whole bunch more than Saul. Okay. And then when you look down a little further on page 4, to the, to the uh, verse from 2 Kings 24, verse 13, or 14, Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. You know, were there 10,000 captives to the penny, you know, to the person? Probably you know, not. <laughs> there might have been. And you should always first take a literal interpretation. But as you read these verses, and when you take time maybe at home to read through these on your own, you'll get the feeling that when they start using the word 10 or 10,000 or 10 anything, they're, begin- they're talking about a generic number meaning a multiple of, lots of. Okay? A lot. Look at page 5, Job 19, verse 1. Then Job responded, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you have insulted me. You are not ashamed to wrong me. Another feeling like the verse with Jacob, right? Okay. You've insulted me a million times. You know, when when are you going to stop? Okay. Um, Look at uh, page six, Matthew, uh, chapter 18, verse 21. This is Peter talking to Jesus. And Peter comes up to Jesus and says, you know, how often do I have to forgive my brother who sins against me? And Jesus says, you know, you don't have, the law said you have to give him, forgive him seven times. And Jesus says, you know what? It's seven is not enough. I tell you, you have to forgive him 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And you all remember the story. The guy with the 10,000, the debt of 10,000 talents was forgiven his debt, went out and then beat up on some poor guy who owed him 10, you know, or one or whatever. It was something ridiculous. The point is, was the point that it was 10,000 talents? No, the point is it was a whole lot of money versus a little bit of money. Okay. And if you look at uh, Luke 15, verse 8, which is the next one. And this is Jesus said. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Again, you know, she has a whole bunch of money. She loses one little bit. She goes, goes and finds it. All right. There's then at the last page, there seemed also to be the ten used in the reverse. But I don't think it detracts from the connotation, because in these three verses, it talks about going from a lot to a fraction of. Okay? So Amos chapter 5 verse 2 thus says the Lord God. A city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left. 
to the house of Judah. See what I mean about it being kind of the same concept, but, but a, it, it flipped. Uh, the next verse, Amos chapter 6, verse 8. And it will be if ten men are left in one house, they will die. And Haggai um, 2.15. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. So, again, it's a fraction of. I mean, if you look at it from the expectation of Asia, mm-hmm. and you think about the prophecy of how Israel was going to be fractured and come down to a remnant, it still works. Exactly. So, when, when I look at these 10 toes... I'm seeing ten being used symbolically in Scripture. I look back at Scripture, and I mean, it's overwhelming when you read this, that ten, when used symbolically, means a plethora of, a lot of, a lot of. So I'm not, although I will watch carefully for ten kingdoms, you know, five in the east, five in the west, if that happens, then it was literal, right? But I'm also not going to be blinded. By watching for that and only that. Because that 10 could very well mean a plethora of nations. Right? Okay? The whole way that we've been approaching this study has been for me to provide you with all the information so you can take it to the Lord in prayer. And, and, and that's what I'm doing. I don't want to like tell you this is how it is or this is how it's not. All right? I'm just trying to tell you this is what I think it is. But you have all the information I do and you can determine. Um, that's right. And, and don't cut short the fact that it, meditating on the things that, that you learn can really open your heart to things the Lord wants to tell you. you know? Well, let's read the last verse. In the days, this is verse 20, uh, 44 in chapter 2. In the days of those kings, and we're talking about clearly the, the ten-toe kings, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all those kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. All right. So here we are kind of to the end of the vision, right, and its interpretation. Now, in one of our earlier lessons, we did uh, uh, examination of the word stone in Scripture. And I didn't pick it by accident, right? I picked it because I knew we were coming to this part of the lesson. What, what did stone mean every time we saw it used symbolic in Scripture? Christ. Every time, okay? It meant the Lord. So clearly, Scripture tells us, and in fact, Daniel tells us a little later on, that this stone, it's not cut of human hands. It comes from a mountain, right? And it fills the whole earth, and its kingdom will never be destroyed. Okay? And... It crushes every single one of those other kingdoms. And it crushes them so badly, they dry up, they blow away. There is no remnant of them left. There's no, are these Jewish 
kingdoms or are these Gentile kingdoms? Everybody together. Gentile, right? Every single, Nebuchadnezzar is Gentile. Persians, Gentile. Greeks, Gentile. Gentile doesn't mean Christian. Gentile means non-Jew. Okay? At Rome, Gentile. Christ somehow is going to utterly blow away all evidence of the Gentile kingdoms. Now, has that happened yet? No. <laughs> no, we're here, right? <laughs> we're Gentile, okay? Could this refer to his first coming and only his first coming? No. You will read a ton of scholars who say that it does. Because they're looking at it spiritually. They're saying Jesus came and he died and he was resurrected. Therefore, he destroyed all power of the, you know, you can see where they're coming from. Right. Okay. Just like you can see the guys who think the ten toes are literal are looking for, you know, Romania and whoever, you know, they come up with as their as their ten kingdoms. But. When you sit down and think about the implications of his coming and the fact that these kingdoms are dried up and blown away, it's got to be the second coming, right? It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened, absolutely. (laughs) So so let's look at this. Um, Would you think this has been prophesied before we get to this dream of Nebuchadnezzar's? Yes, and it was. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now, it came about that in the last days, okay, in the last days, that's what we're talking about here at the end of these kingdoms, in the last days. Because when Jesus Christ comes the second time, that's like the definition of the last days, right? Isaiah chapter 2, right at the beginning. Okay, because when Jesus comes, and we'll get to this in Revelations, but when Jesus comes the second time, he's going to reign a thousand years. Okay, he's going to be the kingdom, not us. In the last days, the mountain of the, and look at the word, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways. They're going to go up to this mountain expecting him, with a capital H, to teach them. This is... Clearly referring to when Jesus is here reigning on earth. Okay. And that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He's going to be in Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Has that happened yet? Is that going to happen in the second coming? Yes. Now, that is a momentous event. So we have read in Daniel, it's been revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You see it in one of the first visions that Isaiah records in chapter 2. The exact same, almost word for word prophecy is in Micah chapter 4. We're not going to read it. It's the same words. Okay. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Word for word. Now, Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. All right? It's very likely they knew each other. Okay? Either the Lord gave them word for word identical prophecies within the same time frame, 
or it's possible they were praying together and received it at the same time. Okay, it's not clear in Scripture what happened. Okay, but it's clearly the Lord wanted us to get that prophecy specifically. So this this dream of Nebuchadnezzar describes what we would call the age of the Gentiles. All right, because up to that point, who's God been dealing with? The Jews. All right. And now he's punishing them, all right? They've fallen away from him. He's warned them, and he's warned them, and he's warned them, and he's warned them. Bam, I'm sending you off into captivity, and I'm dispersing you among the Gentile nations, okay? Gentile nations, that, and, and everybody ended up in, in Chaldea, right, pretty much, and then they scattered from there. So, so Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylon and, and Assyria, but the Chaldean Empire began... The age of the Gentiles had marked the end of that period of Jewish history as a nation, right? This age, of the end, this age of the Gentiles ends when? With the second coming of Christ. Okay? That's what these prophecies are about. Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 28. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, you straighten up. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Okay. So Jesus is clearly, I think, associating these cataclysmic events with his coming, with his second coming. But look up, the Son of Man is coming. All right, Your redemption is drawing nigh. But what he also says is Jerusalem is being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And when do do we, from Old Testament prophecy, we know when that happens? At his second coming. Okay. So this is a, a, a very definite period. But the question then becomes, what happened to the Jews? Were they like, did they lose their chance at salvation? Was that it? Okay. No. The Lord prophesies throughout the Old Testament um, and in the New Testament even that when the age of the Gentiles is fulfilled, the Jews will come to believe in Jesus and will be saved. Okay, And we can see that in Romans 11, uh, verse 17. It's, it's all over the place in the Bible. And we looked at some in earlier lessons. But let, let, let's look at Romans chapter 11, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, 
that's us Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. He means the Jews. Okay, just because you got grafted in doesn't mean you can be snooty to the Jews. Okay. Remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. For I do not want you, brethren, I'm in verse 25. I'm skipping around. But for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will be, not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay. So the end of the age of the Gentiles is the beginning of another period of glorious history for the Jews. It's when they become saved and get to know Jesus. The, the, and we're just going to go in the last couple of minutes through a little bit of Old Testament Prophecy. We just read a New Testament prophecy of that. We're going to look at an Old Testament prophecy. When the Jewish nation was formed, they became a nation at the Exodus, right? Okay. I mean, clearly there was the Abrahamic covenant, and, but that was, it was like a family at that point. They became a nation, and God began dealing with them as a nation when they were numerous as the sands of the seas, right? Um, at the Exodus. And one of the first things that happened at the Exodus was God told them to build a tabernacle to him. Okay, it's kind of a, a portable temple, temple. Okay, and the glory of the Lord came and rested on that tabernacle. They built it to his specifications. And if you look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, it talks about the glory of the Lord coming and settling on that tabernacle. And his instruction, the way they knew how to move during the Exodus was whenever they saw the glory of the Lord kind of pick up and start moving, they were to pick up and follow along. Okay, so the the glory of the Lord hovering over the nation has been tangible, physical, visible to them. All right. Now, Ezekiel, who is another prophet during this time, he was a contemporary of Daniel's, okay, during the the Babylonian period, he saw visions of the glory of the Lord being lifted from and leaving the temple. Okay, And if you look at chapter 9, it's throughout Ezekiel, but chapter 9, verse 3, Then the glory of the Lord, this is his vision, went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple, And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. And he goes on with this the same vision. And then in, in chapter 10, verse 18, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And on and on and on he goes to chapter 11, verse 22. 
Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. It was it's very graphic, okay? But, but we would expect from knowing the prophecies in the Old and the New Testament, we, would we expect the Spirit of the Lord to stay gone from the temple of the Jews? No. Because after the second coming, or at the second coming, or somewhere around the second coming, we expect the Lord to come back, save the Jews, and be with them again, right? Well, sure enough, that same prophet, Ezekiel, had that vision. Ezekiel chapter 43. So we've gone to the end of Ezekiel, all right? Verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold... The glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. That's where it had gone, remember? And his voice was like the sound of many waters, Ezekiel 43. And the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. Okay? So he's saying, hey, I'm familiar with this. This looks familiar. Okay? And the, vi- and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing towards the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And he's talking of the temple. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. For I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry or by the corpses of their kings when they die, by setting their threshold in my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. And they have, they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever." Okay, so it's and and I you know this is just a grab out of just a couple of places where this is talked about as as we've seen you know truths in scripture are in there more than once there you just don't pick out a verse and and hang your hat on it this is over and over in scripture so as we go through Daniel and Revelation and talk about the end times we're beginning to see at least a shape. Okay, we don't know all the events that are going to take place, but so far now we know there's a, there was a period of Jewish history as a nation. There's a period of the time of the Gentiles that will become fulfilled, ended. Christ will come the second time. Okay, the Gentile kingdoms are no more. And then there's a period with the Jews again. Okay, so that's we'll fill in the details as we go through the rest of the Bible. And this is a place to stop. We'll do chapter three next week.